so that we can continue on with our, with our study. Um, just to kind of tie back into what we said, uh, we'll be looking at, at what he said in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. You'll notice in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, the writer, a sudden transition occurs in the narrative there. What's happening is uh, Luke, like most of the historical writers in both the Old and New Testament, uh, at this point his writing assumes the character of a, of a, a biography. And this is very important, and, and I think I made mention to you, to you uh, the fact that this style of writing is, is good for a number of reasons, because for one important reason, it's easier to remember. If you'll just think about it, your personal knowledge of Scripture, uh, particularly concerning those areas of, of Scripture that, have, that, that, are, that record biographies, is much better than it is at other places. In the book of Genesis, you know, you remember more about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph uh, because it's presented in that sort of a narrative. And so that's what he does here. Rather than, than to follow each of the apostles and their activities, it seems that the Holy Spirit directs um, Luke to, to key in on, to focus on, he'll... he'll give us some information about some of the others, especially, of course, some of Peter's work. But primarily, from this point on, he, he, he begins to focus in on the, the, the life and the work of the, uh, of the Apostle Paul. And uh, that's not surprising because in all that we talked about the first couple of weeks in introducing this study, I think it was easy for us to see that, that Saul had... had uh, been educated under the um, under the overruling eye of providence. So many things that happened to him that 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 was true of him in his early life and his upbringing. We saw how that those things prepared him, made him ready for the work that God is um, has chosen for him uh, to do. Um, we did make mention of the fact that although we cannot know for sure, and, and of course about this there are some differences of opinion, but many people believe, and I'm inclined to believe, that it seems to me that Paul, uh, Saul did not, was not in Jerusalem at the time of, of Jesus' uh, baptism and, and his ministry and, uh, and uh, his, his uh, death there. Uh, several reasons for that, but the one that to me is most uh, telling is the fact that Paul makes no mention, and I think I forgot to mention this the last time I was with you. He makes no mention in his epistles. Now there, there there's a, one or two commentators who even differ with that. By the way, you in your personal study, you've probably already found that there are a few things uh, in Scripture that, that, that people just universally agree on without any difference of opinion. So there are one or two that I've run across who think that they detect in one or two of Paul's writings a reference maybe to his having personally 
But to me, those are very vague and not convincing at all. It's just, when you see how that the writer, Luke, uh, details uh, Saul's interaction with Stephen and his persecution, and uh, how that Paul him, Saul himself makes mention of that, acknowledges that, it's just hard for me to believe and accept the idea that if he had had some personal involvement with Christ in Jerusalem, somehow that would have, why would he not have mentioned that? And so I just, I just think like many people, most perhaps, that he had left, his education had been concluded uh, prior to this, prior probably even to the uh, baptizing of John the Baptist. And he had gone back to his hometown, home uh, town of Tarsus in Cilicia, and had remained there until after Jesus' uh, death, and 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 uh, until um, you know the church had begun to grow a little bit, and then he returns, and uh, that's when we take up. He seems to return with the. Uh, he still may, he still has the the same reputation that he had maybe when he left, and and he picks up and and becomes pretty soon a leader even in the, in the persecution um, of Christians, and that, of course, beginning with Stephen and then thereafter. Um, and after the stoning of Stephen and his being put to death, uh, I, I guess Saul and many thought, well, maybe at last we've, we've crushed this, this, uh, this uh, opposition or this, uh, uh, the word's not coming to me, what? This group of people that is that that are are being uh, that are causing this problem is the way they would look at it in Jerusalem, but of course, not long after that, he sees that's not the case because uh, word begins to trickle back. They see that these people who have been scattered abroad following the persecution of Stephen, they went about preaching the word, establishing congregations everywhere, and it's at this point that he learns uh, about. Uh, what's going on in Damascus. And we, and we don't know for sure why they chose Damascus. He chose to go to Damascus, but it was, a, um, it, it was a, an old ancient city, a, a city of, of, of some reputation, and a lot of Jews had, uh, had uh, moved to that area. And uh, so perhaps Saul thought that was a good place for him to carry his uh, persecution, and take up the sword once again, so to speak. And he did that. Um, uh, Luke does not make pers- direct reference to it himself, but Paul, in, in his speeches, both in Jerusalem in Acts 22 and, at, and when talking to Agrippa, he said, for example, many others were beaten in the synagogues and compelled to blaspheme the name of Jesus as a condition uh, of release from their, from their tortures. And so uh, Saul continued to, to uh, involve himself with this persecution of the Christians. And he got papers from the high priest and authorizing him to go to Damascus. You're familiar with all that. So now we're, we're about to where we had left off um, when I, I left uh, two weeks ago. Uh, in verses 3 and 4, of chapter 9, and we're, we're going to be making reference to all three 
of the chapters, but we'll be following, for the most part, chapter 9, and then we'll make reference when needed to the other chapters. Verses 3 and 4, And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there, there flashed around him a light from heaven. And, uh, and uh, he, he heard this, the voice, and he also saw distinctly the one who was speaking to him. He'll refer to this later on in 1 Corinthians 15 and 8. He'll say that Jesus, speaking of Christ, appeared to, to me last of all. So he, he, uh, he saw the Lord and he heard him speaking and, and heard Jesus ask the question, why do you persecute me? And this word persecute, no doubt, pierced his heart and it caused him to immediately uh, be aware, to remember what he had been doing in Jerusalem and what he, had, he was on his way to Damascus uh, to do. And uh, so he says, uh, 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 who are you? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And I think, I think we, right as the bell rang two weeks ago, we, we, I, be, I tried to get you to think with me as much as we possibly can, to put ourselves in Saul's shoes at that time. It's hard for us. We've grown up knowing about the Christ. Uh, and, and it's hard for us to, I think, to really uh, imagine to, to the, uh, the impact that this had on, on, on Saul. Uh, instantly, he was aware uh, because of all that had happened, the light that shined round about, his seeing the Lord. No doubt this was a divine occurrence. So he was not going to doubt. He was not of the disposition at all to doubt what, he, what was happening or to doubt what he heard. But um, all of a sudden, what, what must have gone through his mind? Then he's not an imposter as I have thought him to be. Uh, Stephen was a martyr. Uh, we've put to death an innocent man. Uh, this is the Messiah. And again, it's difficult for you and me. The Jews had, uh, the, 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 for hundreds of years, they had heard about the coming Messiah. They would read about it in the Old Testament Scriptures. They were expecting looking forward to the uh, coming of the Messiah. And uh, I often think about that when I read John chapter 1. When Andrew runs in, you know, he, 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 we read about his encounter with, with uh, John the Baptist who saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew heard that and, and he went first and found his brother Peter and he said to him, I have found the Messiah. And you almost wonder if Peter said, yeah, sure. <laughs> I found the Messiah. Been looking for his coming for hundreds of years, and yet probably no one really expected it. In a sense, they expected it, longed for it, wanted it to happen, but 
it had never happened in generations, and why am I to believe now that he's come? But here is the uh, here's Saul, and he sees him, and he knows this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And so he says, Lord, what will you have me to do? Um, his proud spirit yields, and the, the direction of his life takes an about, about face. A moment ago, Saul was sternly and uh, with fearful calmness pressing on toward Damascus uh, for the destruction of the cause of Christ. But now he is a trembling suppliant uh, at the feet of Jesus. What's caused this change? What's brought about this change? Not merely the fact that he's seen a light and heard a voice, not just that, because when he fell to the ground, his unbelief and his ignorance still remained. Because he said, who are you, Lord? But he was convinced that this was a divine vision, and this prepared him for the answer that he received. Jesus said, I am Jesus. And just that quickly, Saul had a new conviction. It, it, it takes possession of his heart and soul and would continue to possess him for the remainder of his life. Um, the word of the Lord miraculously attested on that occasion gives him faith. And then the conviction that he now has that this Jesus, whom he had been uh, persecuting in the persons of his disciples, was indeed the Son of God. And this brings to him repentance. And he begins to be in agony and mourns over his sin and he awakens from that vision, if, if you can call it that, awakes from that vision, as, if you can call it that, opens his eyes, but he, but he still can't see. And he has to be led uh, by those who are with him. What shall I do, Lord? Uh, and the answer to that question, as you read these three accounts, kind of divides itself into two parts. The first part is found in chapter 9 and, verse, and chapter 22. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But the second part, which is not a direct answer to it, but is found in the 26th chapter. And, and, it, and the second part involves his commission as an apostle. The purpose for God's appearing to him. In these words, he said... I have appeared to you, Jesus talking to Saul, 
I have, this is chapter 26, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, in these words, Jesus uh, expresses the reason for his personal appearance to Saul. He wants to commission him as an apostle. And, uh, of course, as an apostle, he must what? To be an apostle, he must be a what? a witness of his, of his resurrection. So now, having seen him, not only alive, but glorified in this vision, uh, he's, he's now qualified to, uh, to be a witness and to serve in this role. This appearance of Jesus to Saul on this occasion was necessary to his becoming an apostle, but it was not necessary to his con, uh, conversion. So, before he could enter upon the office of an apostle, he had to become a citizen of the kingdom for which he would, for which he would labor. And so, what shall I do? The first part of the answer, the, the part that's found in chapters 9 and 22, arise and go into Damascus, and there it will be told uh, all that is appointed for you to do. All that is appointed for you to do. And the things which had been appointed for him to do were the things which he had in common with all penitent believers. The things that Jesus stated in what we refer to as the Great Commission when he said go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. When he said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be what? Saved. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to all nations. And uh, these are the things that had been appointed unto to Paul and that are, that are appointed unto you and me, every one who wishes to become a child of God. Um, sometime, on some occasions, when Jesus was alive on earth, he would forgive sins at that moment, wouldn't he? There are instances of that. Uh, Mark 2, the thief on the cross. But following his uh, death and his resurrection, then uh, the appointment by, this, by his formal enactment, you might say, of the terms of pardon, or have been committed to earthen vessels. And that was true of Paul as well. If, um, if, if Paul, he did not personally, although he revealed himself to him and told him to go into the city of Damascus, it would be left to Ananias to come to him and uh, to announce unto him what he had to do to complete his... Uh, obedience to Christ. And that's, that's what happened. Uh, in a vision, 
the Lord appeared to Ananias and told him that I want you to go to a certain street, to a certain house, and inquire uh, concerning one named Saul of, of Tarsus. And he's, he's seen a vision of you coming <clears throat> and placing your hands upon him and of his receiving his sight. Well, Ananias knew about this Saul. And he raises the, the issue with the Lord. He said, I know about this man. I've heard about him and what he's done and so forth. And uh, the Lord said to him, go, because he's a what? He's a chosen vessel of mine. Messiah. Well, go into the city. Uh, and if Jesus should speak today directly and answer the question, what shall I do? He would say, as it were, go into Damascus. In other words, the gospel has been committed to earthen vessels. And uh, if Jesus would not tell Saul, who had asked him directly, what shall I do, specifically the terms of his uh, obedience to the gospel, why would he tell anyone today? This is a, an example of how we need to carefully read the scripture and, 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 and believe, have trust in what we're reading. And you can... You can turn from the scriptures and open some book written by men and you'll start reading all kinds of things about this. Um, but uh, we need to think. We need to think about what we're reading. These stories of conversion that are recorded in the book of Acts are the stories that I heard when I was a youngster coming up in Bible classes in... Tallis, Alabama, when Ms. I had a Eunice and a Lois in my life. You know, Timothy had a, a Eunice and a Lois. Uh, if I remember correctly, Eunice was his mother and Lois was his grandmother. In my case, Lois was my mother and Eunice was my first grade teacher. I'll tell you a little story about her. She never married. She was a school teacher. She also taught us in... Uh, in, in, in church and when we were little little guys. And I had a cousin, Rex, first cousin. And he and I were somewhat notorious. We'd go down to, many it was a Sunday morning that we'd go down to Bible class and because of some carryings on, I'd be sent out of the class upstairs to sit next to my daddy. Well, that's the last thing that I wanted to happen, of course. Lots and lots of times she would do that. Well, Hillier and Hooker, 
That's his last name. Both beginning with H. We go to the first grade, and they have enough students for two classes. So they divide us alphabetically. So both of our names, last names begin with H. We both were sent to the same class. And we were so excited, so tickled. That afternoon of the first day, the principal came in and got me and escorted me to another class, at the other class. And I found out later what that was all about. Sister uh, Finlayson, uh, uh, Eunice Finlayson, had uh, uh, told them about Rex and me and told them that they needed to separate us. So they had separated me. But back to the point. I remember those stories that we would read from the book of Acts, and it was those stories of conversion that were so clear, crystal clear, that even, even as a young person, I could see clearly what was being done. And I didn't have any idea when I'd read them that if I did that, it'd be, some, it'd be because of some personal merit. That I, that I would be saved, that I would have in some way earned. Even in my young way of thinking, I knew that that was connected to Jesus and what, had, what he had done on Calvary, and, and my response was connected. I didn't understand it as fully then, maybe as I do now, but I knew that it was connected to what Jesus had done. And I was, I was baptized at the age of 14. Cecil will appreciate this. Some of you, do any of you ever remember a preacher by the name of Ira Rice? Well, his father baptized me. I never knew his son until I got to be grown and became a preacher myself, and he was something else. I'll just leave it at that. But but, uh, his daddy, little bitty man, and high in the world, we... He came to be in Tallis, Alabama, I don't know, but at the age of 14, I stepped out and I went down and obeyed the gospel during a meeting that Ira Rice Sr. was uh, preaching. But I did it because even at 14, I understood from these clear examples of conversion in Acts what I was supposed to do. And I knew why what I was doing was efficacious because of what Jesus had done. And I wasn't doing something to earn or merit anything. I was simply doing what the Lord had told me to do and was connecting with his blood, which was shed on Calvary for my sins. And so we need to, when we read the scripture, use study helps course, but also first and foremost, open the scriptures yourself and read them. Think about what you're reading and uh, trust what you're reading. Uh, I may have told you this before. I was preaching in Evergreen and I had a daily radio program and uh, my program followed immediately a syndicated program that they ran on that station by a preacher by the name of Haggai. Have you ever heard of him? 
a good, good speaker and, and in many ways a good Bible student. And on one Sunday, I mean on one morning as I drove in, I always listened to him because I knew I'd be following him. And, and one morning as they were studying, he was studying the book of Acts and each day he would take up a few more verses. And when they got to chapter 20, I wondered what he would say when he got down to about verse 7, you know, and on the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. And I was absolutely amazed as he talked about that. I had never heard anyone, anyone do a better job of explaining those verses and the circumstances surrounding it and, and, and what obviously they were saying. He said that on, at that time, the, the disciples met up on the first day of every week. It's obvious, he said, because of Paul's that You know, he, he taught that just as plainly as anybody you'd ever hear. And I thought, well, wait a minute. The group that he's a member of, that he's associated with, doesn't do that. You know what his next was? He dismissed it with this phrase. But in the 20th century, we don't do that anymore. That's all he said. In the 20th century, we don't do that anymore. And I thought, well, but why don't we do that anymore? I think I would ask, if I'd been of his fellowship, if they did it, why don't, why don't we do it? You know, there are a lot of things you read about in Scripture that we don't do anymore, so that, I mean, I don't have any problem with that concept. But there are a lot of things that you read about in Scripture that we do continue to do and because we think, how do you make that distinction? And why do we not do that? But no reference, well, just simply, we don't do that in the 20th century. And uh, so, anyway, I've rambled so long, I've lost my mind. My notes have gone dead here on me. <laughs> but anyway, let me stop that and get back to, uh, to where we are. Okay. Um, so, uh, then in verse 7, Now the men who were journeying with him stood uh, speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no man. There's, there's, on the surface, there's a couple of discrepancies here. Um, here, Luke says, the men with him stood speechless. Paul, in, in uh, one of the chapters, either 22 or 26, I believe it's 22, he says that they uh, fell to the earth with him. But there's no discrepancy there. I mean, there's a logical explanation for it. No doubt when the bright light first appeared and the sound, by the way, they, they could hear the sound, and there's a smile... Uh, seeming discrepancy there because in one place it says they heard, the other place says they didn't hear. Well, the English Standard uh, Version uh, explains that by the way it uh, uh, translates it. They heard but didn't understand. Heard but didn't understand. Uh, there are a lot of occasions when you can hear someone speaking but you don't understand. Maybe a lot of reasons. You may not understand the language or maybe too distant or too garbled or too much... Uh, you know, you can hear and be aware of the fact that people are saying something without understanding. So they heard but didn't understand. They fell to the earth, but then when, uh, before they're at the uh, first, uh, uh, 
when they first saw the light and so forth. But then you can imagine them arising and perhaps standing back. And that's what uh, Luke is referring to. He's referring to the time after the conversation between Saul and and the Lord uh, started. They were kind of standing off to the side, hearing but not understanding uh, what was uh, being said. Um, And so uh, Saul is... uh, Struck blind, even when the when he arises, he, he opens his eyes, but he can't see, and so he's led into the city. Now let's see what progress has been made so far toward his conversion. If he's to be an apostle, he has to see the Lord. But if he's to be an apostle, he first has to be a Christian. So what progress has been made? Well, first of all, at this point he is a believer, right? Did anyone doubt? that Saul at this point is a believer, having experienced this this, uh, miraculous occurrence and having seen and heard the Lord speak to him. So he's a believer. And not only that, but he's obviously in uh, uh, repentance because of the, uh, the anguish that he shows and he's led into the city and for three days he neither eats nor what? drinks, but he is, we learn in one of the accounts, but he's doing what? Praying. For three days. Uh, What's that expression on the old Jewel Miller film strips that I always liked? There's no instance in scripture where any man or woman ever stopped to eat a bite, drink a drop, or sleep a wink until they had what? been immersed into Christ. Do you remember? That's the true statement. And uh, so he's, he's, he's a penitent believer. Uh, but is he justified? Not yet. He's not yet justified. Uh, by the way, this is a good, a good example of, of the fact that, that uh, the, the idea that some people have is about faith, and in particular, faith only. Paul's own account of conversion uh, doesn't, doesn't bear that out. Some believe, you know, that you're saved by faith only, saved at the very instant that you believe, before and without any, anything else. But uh, Saul's own experience does not bear that out. It's true, Paul says, by faith. What what does Paul say in Romans? He says, being justified by what? By faith. We have peace with God. But it's not being justified by faith only. It's after faith moves us to to accept the the terms of uh, of salvation. So uh, the Lord appears to Ananias. He prepares him. Ananias goes to see Paul and... uh, And uh, he says to him what? Arise and be what? Baptized and wash away thy sins. Now you've heard me say before, and I mean this sincerely, I'm not going to argue with anyone about baptism. I'm just not. The scripture is 
as plain as day about baptism. Now, I know that we live in a world where much, uh, a lot of erroneous things are said about baptism, and because of that, there may, it may be necessary at times to discuss it with people and think about it a little bit, but I'm not going to, you, you know, when the Bible says things like, arise and be baptized and what? Wash away your... I think I know what that means. I may not, but I sure think I know what that means. And when someone says, oh, but he had all, his sins had already been forgiven, it's just that he, la-da-da, whatever it is, you know, they say. Well, the Holy Scriptures say that his sins had not been forgiven because Ananias told him to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Uh, you know, a person's going to have to make their own mind up about that when they read it. When they read, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, pretty simple, Person's going to have to just make up their own mind about what to believe about that. Are they going to listen to someone who says, He that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved? Or is he going to believe what the scripture says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? I don't believe water saves anybody. I don't either. I don't believe we can do anything to earn our salvation. I don't either. I believe God's love is unconditional. I believe he sent his son to die for all men everywhere. But though his love is unconditional, his salvation is not unconditional. He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And so Saul was baptized and his sins were washed away. Uh, and he received the Holy Spirit. I don't think uh, I don't think Ananias imparted the Holy Spirit to him. I think uh, it, Ananias coming to him was necessary to his receiving the Holy Spirit. For one thing, what do we read in Acts 2.38? Repent and be baptized to every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sin. You shall what? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit promised there, I'm assuming Saul received when he was baptized, just as you and I do. But the Holy Spirit that Paul received was a little different from what you and I received because he was to become an apostle and he himself says that he was not a whit behind any of the apostles. And so he was to receive that, if you'll excuse it, uh, not excuse it, but if you understand what I mean about the expression the baptismal measure. And, and the reason I'm using that reference is in Acts 1, you remember Jesus told the disciples before he ascended, carry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be in, you know, viewed with power from on high. And he said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then in the very next chapter, they were there in Jerusalem and there, you, you know that, 
appeared, there was a, suddenly there was a loud noise and a fire appeared over them and all that, and they were filled with all. They were on that occasion baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and Saul received that same degree or measure or influence, or how you want to think of it, of the Holy Spirit that the apostles did. And I'm assuming he received the same way they did, that, that the Lord uh, gave it to them, Christ uh, uh, gave it to them, sent it down upon them on Pentecost, and Saul, upon his conversion, apparently at that very same time, received that same degree of, uh, of, of Holy Spirit power. And, and he was in no way less an apostle than, than all the rest of them. Um, I don't think uh, Ananias gave him that measure of the Holy Spirit because there's no evidence in the Scripture of anyone being able to impart the Spirit to others except the apostles. Now, Christ could give it and did, baptize. You know, he said, I indeed what? John said, I indeed baptize you water, but there comes one after me that'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. <clears throat> Jesus could do it, but no human, there's no evidence of any human being able to impart the Holy Spirit to others except the apostles. And in the absence of that, uh, of that I think we are, uh, are not on safe ground to assume that it, would, that it could be done in any other way. So arise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the, uh, the name of the Lord. Uh, so, Paul does that immediately. He takes food and refreshment. Reminds you of the Ethiopian eunuch in the chapter before, in chapter 8, who after his baptism, arose from the waters of baptism, rejoicing, went on his way rejoicing. Paul now, after three days of fasting and prayer, now takes food, he's rejoicing, he's he has peace <clears throat> because he's obeyed the gospel. And he begins immediately to, to, he goes into the synagogues and immediately begins to, to preach, preach that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Isn't that something? Here's a man that has been persecuting people for that belief. And immediately he goes in there and he begins preaching that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. God's Son and this great truth will motivate him for the rest of his life to endure whatever he has to endure. He then goes away into Arabia, comes back after a while, about three years are spent either in Damascus and away in Arabia. Then he comes down to Jerusalem, he wants to see Peter, but interestingly, it's Barnabas, the son of consolation. I don't know whether Barnabas sought him out or whether Saul sought him out. I don't know how it happened, but it took Barnabas, this kind spirit of Barnabas. Maybe he sat down with Saul and listened to him when no others would, but he then took Saul and introduced him and uh, said, this guy's all right. He was there for a while, and then the Lord appeared to him and said, you need to leave this city because they'll not tolerate your preaching. 
oh, but Lord, I was one of them. I can reach them. No, he said, not now, not here you can't. You need to leave. And so he leaves Jerusalem, goes back to his hometown, where he stays until the next time we pick him up, we'll see Barnabas, who had been sent by the elders of the church in Jerusalem up to Antioch, he'll, he'll need some help. And so he himself will travel to Tarsus and he'll get Saul and say, I need you to come down here and help me. And he'll come with him to Antioch and they'll begin a work there that'll catapult them uh, onto, into great missionary efforts uh, through, throughout the world. Now one thing before we quit, that, that in chapter 9, and we also looked at 22 and 26. Now, before we pick him up again in chapter 11, something needs to be, so far, you've read about him, his conversion, and him going into the synagogues. What about the uncircumcised? What about the Gentiles? Isn't this gospel for the Gentiles as well? Yes. So in chapter 10, we're going to read about Peter going to the household of Cornelius, uh, Gentile family and introducing them into the kingdom and opening up the kingdom as it were using those same keys that he used on Pentecost for the Jews he uses now to open the doors of the kingdom for the Gentiles and then we'll pick up Saul again in chapter 11 okay thank you Yeah, if you don't mind, thank you. Me, thank you.